And now it's time for the Wild Side News with your host, Sydney Wildsmith. Want to be a great nature photographer? You and about 16.2 million others, and maybe even more than that. There's a lot to it, and today we go in-depth with Jeff Mitchum, whose expertise took him around the world with National Geographic, and who continues his worldwide quest for the interesting, the sublime, and the magical. If you've ever dreamed of being a professional nature photographer, we're about to focus in on the life of a pro. When your voice of the earth continues, here on the Wild Side News. back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. Imagine, if you'd like, what it would be like to make your living traveling around the world to some of the most exotic, remote, and breathtaking places and being paid to seek out the interesting, the intricate, the powerful and serene and capture it all on film. The life of a professional nature photographer is filled with adventure, mystery, and romance. But the truth is, only a handful ever really have the skills, determination, and whatever else it takes to become one of the best. But today, we're going in-depth with one of the top nature photographers. Jeff Mitchum discusses how he got started, what it takes to be a top-tier nature photographer, shares some of his secrets and adventures. He's not only got a great eye, he also has an ability to share his perceptions with clarity and a great sharing of spirit. There's a lot of insights, no matter what your level of interest in photography may be, Jeff tells you what you need to know to become a great nature photographer. Well, I think as everybody knows, I, I'm a person who is totally fascinated with the wonder. That also translates as the beauty that we see in this extraordinary planet, and as well the, the miraculous nature of the creatures, the wild creatures. They thrill me as they thrill so many people. I'm sitting in the studio of someone who is a very fortunate guy, hard-working, he has an opportunity to literally go out into nature and spend real, real time, because what he does is he takes his cameras out there and creates some extraordinary images, and uh, has been very successful with this, and I want to welcome to the Wild Side News, Jeff Mitchum. Jeff, thanks for being here. Thank you, Sydney. It's great to have you, and welcome to Mikasa. Yeah. <laughs> we both share space here in, San, in the San Diego area, and so this is a, a rare opportunity for me to... Uh, actually sit with one of my guests and, and have a conversation. You're a photographer. You like to work with film and you like to work with... Your presentations are very large format pieces that are truly extraordinary. Let's first of all start talking about how in the world you got started as a photographer. For me, is when I was about 12, my dad was an avid hunter. And when we went out uh, during opening season for pheasants, that uh, and then later for deer, I just asked my dad the question, "Why uh, I don't like the meat?" I said, "I'd rather I prefer chicken, and I prefer fish and cow if I have to do something." But uh, I said, "I just don't understand why I would want to shoot something that I don't want to eat, and there's no need to shoot them." And um, you know, and so then he gave me a camera. 
And he said, you're right. And eventually that led to my dad getting out of hunting, uh, that one question. So from there, that's where my photography began to take on its own personality and its own charm. And as I see things, uh, you know, through nature, you know, with the camera lens and that was really like the beginning of where my photography started. My dad introducing me to the outdoors through hunting and then that light clicking on that I don't have to go outdoors and shoot something. I can go outdoors, see it, capture it, and let it walk away and leave it alive, leave it in a better condition, hopefully. So where did you grow up? Grew up in California, born raised here in Southern California on the beach surfing. That was my pretty much my protocol growing up in the swimming pool and that would be at 4 4 a.m. swim workouts then at 6 o'clock surfing Huntington Beach Pier uh, in school by 8 and that was the rough life that I had to live (laughs) which is interesting because of the uh, you know that was my other connection to photography is you know I came to understand early morning light uh, through surfing and watching the sun, and uh, which brings so many people to the beach, is just watching sunrises, and then you start seeing the color shift and the patterns in the ocean and the warmer light temperatures, things that are really essential to understanding, you know, uh, just going really strong with your photography. So the question would be, although you started photographing at 12, uh, even before that, did you find yourself, uh, somehow nature spoke to you in in special ways that perhaps it didn't with others? Pretty much it was just a thing that I realized I was seeing things uh, with the camera and interpreting nature in a unique way, in a different way, as I would be pointing things out to people and identifying and, you know, possibly going macro with it that other people would just be walking by. And so I started thinking, you know, I'm seeing things differently than uh, the way that these other people are seeing it. And so that kind of opened up my ideas. And then it started, you know, bringing me full circle around to, you know, understanding that what I see with the camera uh, is the same thing that people see in their minds when they write. And not being a great writer... I can barely write my name, <laughs> but I thought, okay, what they capture in words, which mesmerizes me, you know, I look at how people write and how proficient, prolific, you realize they've got the master's touch, then I realize I'm doing the same thing only with film. I'm capturing the way I see it. So in those early years with your camera, what were you shooting with? We're not going to go real technical here, but, but you know, photography is uh, quite an involved process, particularly at, before digital. Mm-hmm. So just some of, the, some of the details, because if you're trying to do macro work, you have to have some special lenses. Were you privileged to have, have access to some of that? And the first one is those disposable cameras. <laughs> That's what my dad gave me. He didn't give me a 600-millimeter lens and... Say so go out and knock them dead and drop a small king's ransom, but it's just a point and shoot camera. And then from there, I learned to get close, and because uh, you had to get close with those, and then you had to have a lot of light uh, working with wildlife. So you know, I learned a lot of the temperaments of uh, photography by you know just having a disposable camera, getting close. Well, you've just made some great big points with me because <laughs> Huntington Beach. It's a nice upscale community in many respects, at least it is right now. 
And uh, so I was kind of imagining when you said your dad went out and got you a camera that he went out and pulled off a Nikon with some great lenses. And uh, so now the fact that you actually started out with such humble beginnings, I think, is is really cool. <laughs> it's just, you know, you're looking through a viewfinder. Well, yeah, and, uh, you know, one of the adages that, you know, I've taught other photographers, because the trap that we get into as photographers, one more lens if I need, you know, that camera body, and uh, and I think a great phrase to live by that it's not the arrow, but it's the Indian, you know. You can have all of the equipment, the quivers, the bows, the strings, but if you don't know how to pull it back and aim the arrow and develop your own technique and work within the resources that you have, it, it doesn't matter what you throw in, in your direction in the way of camera equipment. It, it just won't happen. In fact, there's just too much. I mean, you can take too much in the field. And I think that one of the great challenges is that, you know, to make whatever it is that you have, make that work for almost any application. You should be able to strap on an 80 uh, millimeter lens and go out and you know do phenomenal work and you know develop that discipline there because people listen to this from the internet why don't we invite them at this point if they wish to go ahead and uh, take a look at some of your images so let's start with your website yeah there's a couple of different websites but uh, the new one that we just launched is called seasons of light gallery plural seasons of light gallery and a link to that is Mitchum Photography. So M-I-T-C-H-U-M photography.com, and then that'll get you into the panoramics and the wildlife and so forth. I think it's important for people to really see what you do. Then how did you progress at that point? To say that you want to be a photographer, you're going to snap kids, or what are you going to do? But let's talk a little bit about how that developed. Yeah, I, I mean, I disdain taking pictures of people. <laughs> Unless it's my family or friends or something, I just I, it is that is unique for Matt. It's a, I have a good friend. He does portraiture work and he does some of my bio stuff when I need someone to take it. And it's a it's a different mindset, and you know I respect it, but it wasn't for me. I'm too hyper. I am not made for the studio. I I've got way too much adrenaline going on, and I I've got to be moving. And I like the challenge of landscape photography, so I'm very highly competitive. You'll read in my bio, you'll see my triathlete background and, you know, doing Ironman and 50-mile runs. And it's very consistent with my personality and the way that God has made me. And uh, so that started my outdoor work and that I always wanted to get up on another ridge. And then a little bit of the competitiveness is probably it, it plays out into the photography is that, you know, you're trying to capture something that, you know, people have never seen or it's never been done before. And in today's world where every household has a camera, that's a very difficult challenge. So, but I can take, I can take it personal and, uh, you know, say, you know, there, there's much to do in this world still and, and what it means to nature. So that was step number one. And then the other step that, you know, allowed me to progress was, you know, just simply success. You know, I started being published and uh, people started taking a great interest in my work. Uh, people wanted to buy my prints and I thought that was pretty cool that somebody would want to put that on their wall and live with me. You know, not personally, but with an image that I took. And, uh, and, then, and from there, it just opened up a whole, you know, bunch of, you know, new opportunities. And 
you know, and then slowly, uh, you know, it, got, it came to the point that after, you know, my stint with National Geographic, that I went exclusively into fine art print photography, you know, versus more of a documentary kind of work. And really, I wanted to have strong statements built around nature and landscape scenery that would really push and move people emotionally and practically to get involved either in the environment and ideally both and then you know to do interior decorating and you know promoting what we've got going on and that's been really the core of our clients you know that they just love that theme and the colors and the subjects so that was the second launching pad that kind of moved me into my photography moving it from a hobby to a business that's a big deal and it's a real challenge you know to do that you mentioned that you worked with National Geographic, and there probably is no more wonderful mystique than the concept of being a National Geographic photographer. Tell us about how that came about. Photography is probably one of the most competitive businesses in the world, and not many people really get to the point that they can they can achieve levels uh, that you, that you have. How do you begin to work with National Geographic? You know, Sydney, you're a, you're a good photographer. There's, like you said, there's many great photographers that are out there. From a technical standpoint, there's a lot more technical people than I am. And as far as success and you know making that connection and doing all of that, I just tell people it's dumb luck. It's it, you're you're just very fortunate. You know, you're in the right place at the right time. And it makes a connection, and then they go through your portfolio, and uh, there needs to be depth, there needs to be strength, uh, there needs to be uniqueness. So, but again, a lot of people have that, and then you know, why is it that your number gets pushed versus someone else? It's just luck, and it's uh, you, you can't understand it. You know, it's like grace. You know, would God choose? to use grace and uh, work with one person and several people. And I mean, you never can figure that out. You know, it's a mystery. So I, I'm done trying to figure that one out. I just, I'm thankful. <laughs> but it came to the point that I turned them down so that, you know, they just don't pay anymore. So because of all of these other great photographers, <laughs> there's no business anymore there, uh, you know, for a family person. And, you know, if you want to own a home and it's, uh, you know, at that point, it's, you know, you got some big decisions you have to make. So that's what's so nice about being self-employed. <laughs> so what's it like trekking around the world, stalking the wonder with an eye to capture its life in a flash? We continue our talk with Jeff Mitchum when your Voice of the Earth continues here on the Wild Side News. Melting polar ice was a dirty look. Shrinking glaciers, a nudge. Then dying coral reefs pushed us, hard. Rising ocean temperatures and extreme weather, an uppercut. Then record-breaking heat waves hit us right where it hurts. Has it occurred to anyone that maybe the Earth is trying to get our attention? We can still reduce greenhouse gas pollution. To find out how, go to fightglobalwarming.com. Brought to you by Environmental Defense, the Robertson Foundation, and the Ad Council. Thank <laughs> you. 
Welcome back to the Wildside News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. One might think that with the trillions of megapixels being caught on digital cameras, there'll be no shortage of great nature photography in the years ahead. And yet, even with all the advantages of the digital revolution, Jeff Mitchum still shoots with film. It's the way he learned, and it's the way he loves to shoot. We continue our discussion with world-class nature photographer Jeff Mitchum when your voice of the earth continues here on the Wild Side News. Jeff Mitchum has spent most of his life looking for the beauty and the splendor. Then he peers through a viewfinder and pushes his finger. And, well, there's a lot more to good photography than that. Jeff continues to talk about his adventures in stalking the wild wonder. Well, I'm sure a lot of people would find it interesting when they look at your website, and I'm sure many people already are, they're going to see that you've really traveled many, many, many places, I mean, all over the world, all over the world, mm-hmm. and, and taken some extraordinary shots. Talk a little bit about about how you approach this portfolio because it, it is everything from spectacular close-up images of wildlife as well as grand landscapes, but, but then as well place. And I'm just curious how you kind of approach those different realms from, the, from your professional perspective. Well, there's a couple of things, you know, again, that, that business side, if I could start with that. You know, sometimes there's an image that you come across and you know that you have a market for it. Um, and also you know that is going to be a good market for that particular image and that when the public sees it, they're going to get involved or they're going to be more conscious when they come into that area, keeping it clean, keeping it pristine, restoring it, protecting it. Uh, so there's a little bit of uh, a mixed marriage there. You know, the business side does somebody really want to purchase this image? Is there a need for it? And then sometimes, uh, you know, the other part is, um, you know, its value to the world. Uh, so there's the business side. But when I uh, generally approach, though, for the most part, 90% of the time, that's just the other 10% that sometimes clicks in the back of my brain, I'll come upon a scene. And I look at it, I study it. Um, other times you've seen other people that have taken that image and you look at it and you study it some more. And then I start thinking, how can I photograph this differently? Or has it really been captured in its essence? There's a um, place when you go on the website, in fact, it's under my new releases, and I've been working in this area in Big Sur, maybe the most photographed place in the world outside of Yosemite. <laughs> And uh, it, it, it gets a lot of good photography. And there's uh, and the guys that live there, I think of Brock Bradford at the Big Sur uh, River Inn, and he's uh, but he lives there. That's his backyard. You cannot compete with those guys. <laughs> it's a done deal. I mean, they live there. You know, they see all the changes. And seven hours north for me, I can't get there when I would want to be there. So, and generally, I'm in another place of the world, anyways. But you know, sometimes I'll see some of the things that he has done, you know, and I'll look at it and I'll study it, and then I want to know how could I shoot it and what would be different. So even though this is his backyard, I have what uh, is really unique and special, and when you go to the new releases, you'll see a image, and it's called Under the Moonlight. I did this three-hour exposure, 
at an F-11 with this uh, lagoon, waterfall, the ocean, the seascape, and uh, sensational. Just a beautiful image and unique. So, you know, I walked out of there with a diamond in the rough that, you know, nobody's really captured that before. And, you know, I kind of carried that same theme down into Pfeiffer and the same area. And, you know, just thinking, you know, just sitting and then, and then shooting it throughout the year. Different times of the year, different lighting, different angles of that light. So you have to be very religious in, you know, approaching an image like that, that, you know, or any image, and just thinking, you know, how can I approach, and, you know, probably then, you know, the, the key to photography at that junction and, and great photography is anticipation. You know, seeing it in your mind beforehand and being prepared to capture it, and that means weather conditions, reading the lighting, color shifts, uh, the landscape, the composition, all of that has to be done, should be done well in advance. You just don't stumble across great photos. You know, Ansel Adams stumbled across one in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and <laughs> as we know, that famous photo that he has. But that's, you know, those things happen, but not rarely. It's obvious to me when I look at your work that you've spent real time. You can't just be driving along, maybe once in a while. Once in a while, you may get yeah. lucky, okay? Mm -hmm. But literally, in terms of, let's say, U.S. landscapes, do you travel back roads? How do you find the, the off-road places? Do you spend time literally hiking, walking around? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what you do is, you know, you get up and you, you have your early morning subjects that you want to work with and... Perhaps the day before you laid out that early morning shot, again, you're anticipating, you're looking at the direction of the sun, where it's going to come up, how is the lighting going to affect what time of day that you want to be there. And so a lot of your homework is done the day before, and then you arrive, you shoot that location, and typically, you know, we, noon and, you know, the afternoon hours, the sun is so harsh that that's an ideal time to scout. And so here's your chance to organize your film bag and, you know, clean camera equipment. But that's when I start hiking. Uh, I'll do a lot of uh, back road driving and, you know, investigating, looking, walking down canyons and, you know, and staying disciplined too that you can never go over enough ridges. You know, just keep going and looking and looking and looking. And another point that I would say that needs to be adhered to is not only the, you know, the, the, the hiking, but being very, very disciplined in, you know, the realm of your fitness and do not settle for photographs taken out of the car. You know, there's the locations, obviously it's, you know, I think of Oxbow Bend. I mean, you drive right to it in the Tetons and uh, the Snake River. I mean, you drive right there and, you know, the Moran, you know, Junction and a lot of those places, that, yeah. But don't let that dictate the style of photography that you, if you're going to be a nature landscape photographer you got to get out you got to hike you got to get up on different angles and get higher lower sideways get wet you know whatever it takes <laughs> get out and have fun <laughs> well i get the sense that's a huge part of why you do this i kind of imagine you literally working out of base camps and tents and backpacks and diff different things like that as opposed to as you say the people <laughs> who go to a hotel and drive out and and come back and party or something like that <laughs> uh, you know and that's that can be a side of it too but yeah, uh, yeah what's the mix there well, I like hotels. <laughs> it wasn't like that early, uh, but I was starving. And uh, but no, I mean uh, diversity. You know, keeping a balance, moderation. 
there's a time for hotels. Uh, Alaska in the wintertime, hotels. <laughs> Alaska in, you know, the uh, spring and, you know, midsummer with the uh, bugs, you know, dealing with that. And, you know, it's uh, th- that's a nightmare. And, uh, you know, you want protection. Africa and the Serengeti and, you know, you just don't want to be out in a tent with, you know, dealing with those big, you know, large predators, uh, the food chain, which you're a part of now. So, but, you know, you know, I think you have to, you know, make the connection and, you know, be willing to sweat and, you know, to sleep under the stars and, you know, that's what it's about. And so you can go minimalist and, uh, and I think for people that are on the budget, that's the great thing about camping is that um, you're saving money, which means you can put that into another trip and go out and you know hit the trips that you want and you know get after it. And I hear a lot of people say that they can't afford going on trips and they're staying at five star hotels. I'm thinking you know that's a safari, <laughs> you know. So go to uh, you know a more of a lower budget or something, but you know you can do it. We've kind of been focusing on the landscape, but now let's move into the to the realm of your animal photography, which is really extraordinary. You really go out and find these amazing creatures. I'm sure you can tell us. Once in a while, I get lucky, but most of it is a lot of patient, hard work. Yeah, and we were talking earlier about one of the grizzlies that you know I captured, and you know, following them for three days and through this high grass, and then finally. Anticipating that he was going to get up on his hind legs as soon as something piqued his interest, and sitting behind that big lens and following him day in and day out, waiting just for that one photo. But what makes that image happen? It's so special is anticipation, knowing his behavior, knowing that when something loud or a change in his environment gets through into his ears and just hearing isn't going to be enough. He's going to want to have visual contact. Then I know that he's in eight foot grass. He's going to have to get on his hind legs, which means that now I've got the frame of that beautiful sweeping green grass and the browns and the light was right on him. And uh, that that's what made that photo so special. When you're photographing wildlife, talk a little bit about the mix between the lens versus getting close there is and you know the the speed in which you have to shoot sometimes is really important grizzlies you can get away with shooting you know at a slower speed because they tend to move slower birds are going to be uh, a faster you know moving subject what that means is that a shorter lens is going to move a lot quicker and longer lens is going to move there's there's give and take I think all the time you know a longer lens allows you to crop in tighter uh, to follow them at a distance so that they're not getting stressed out which is really important working with wildlife that we don't change their behavior so that we can get a photo closer is better if you can work with shorter lenses then you can get away from the tripod and ramp up the you know shutter speed on it and uh, you're going to get sharper images, but then you also have to make sure that you're not crossing that line, you know, where they're uncomfortable with you. And, you know, animals habituate differently. You know, every animal is different. Some grizzlies I'll work with exclusively with long lenses because they're dangerous. They are an absolute dangerous animal. That particular personality of that particular bear 
you can just see they're very agitated. Rarely do you ever see at all. I've never seen anyone working with interior grizzlies up close. Never. All those close-up shots of those big bears are on the coast. They have plenty of food. They're not stressed. They're very familiar with their environment, and you can work very, very tight with them with a short lens. Talk about some of the experiences that you've had shooting various forms of wildlife. Well, you have, uh, there's another image that's in my web portfolio. It's a uh, grizzly in a waterfall, very f- popular place, you know, in Brooks. And uh, I actually had hiked up into a little bit of a higher area to get away from people, and I was looking for some different angles and didn't want to be bothered by the rangers. So I'm up working in this one area, and uh, grizzlies will not turn their backs on one another. So if you have another big male competing for the fishing grounds, that that one is fishing in, then what happens is that the dominant male will push out the other grizzlies to other locations in that area to fish. And so this one big male had come in, and uh, his name is Bibi, and he was notorious. Uh, he actually has killed several grizzlies. He's like, you know, the Mike Tyson of bear world. And he, uh, and he walks into the uh, river, and the one grizzly that I was working with uh, doesn't turn his back, but he starts backing away. And I'm sitting on the river's edge. He keeps backing away. I've got a grizzly on my left. i got one on my right. And I have nowhere to go. And I'm stuck. And this grizzly doesn't even look back. And as he's walking out, I'm sitting right on the river's edge. He puts his back paw. Now he's just within feet. And then he puts that back paw. He puts it right on my foot rolls over it with that big pad of his. It's soft, you know, it didn't hurt my foot, but the fact is he's touching me now. Looks back and not wanting to turn his back on BB, gives me a little grunt and then turns sideways and walks down the river. So that's that, that's one of my, my favorite stories. <laughs> I came out alive and, you know, the bear was okay. And um, But that's, uh, that's what happens when you work with short lenses. <laughs> You know, not a lot of room for air there. Yeah. Since you spend so much time literally watching all sorts of different animals, what are you learning about them? Well, uh, that when you move slow and that when you're very respectful of their environment, you introduce yourself to their environment and, you know, you just you sit still. They're very tolerant of people extremely tolerant of people it's sudden movements that really you know move them you know i i think there's a balance i mean i know that there has been you know an attempt to introduce people into the animal you know kingdom and make this as you know a part of their you know their evolution but um there is so many noticeable differences that you know the more that you study and you watch them you just you realize here is and, and this, this might be an entirely unpopular thing to say, but by my personal observation, that unlike humans, that rarely but they do they do show a true stick love <laughs> they do share the ability to share charitable they're you know humans are are provoked to be giving and and loving and kind. Uh, the animal kingdom is very very selfish very independent it's me 
and no one else. The only thing they care about outside of their offspring is their own independent survival. You never see a bear providing, you know, killing something and then feeding, uh, you know, coyotes or foxes and vice versa. They're always in a constant state of being agitated because they have to. That's the way that they stay alive. An unalert lion or an unalert leopard, that's a dead one. They don't live very long. They have a lot of opportunist type of you know, decisions that they'll make. If you go in and you watch animals and, you know, in Africa, <laughs> you know, they're all constant. Those ears are moving, their eyes are twitching, their necks are turning around, and there's only one reason why. Who's coming to kill me? And uh, so that's a it's it's a different way to look at you know not that um, it causes us not to love them any less but it does help us to help them and we don't want to change their environment and start gobbling up more space or doing things like that that endangers them and uh, so we have to be very careful in the way that we work with them and then also you know keeping a respectful distance you know, at the same time. What animals are your favorite to photograph? Boy, I I, I love them all. I've taken a, a real active interest in just breaking down and, you know, any chance that I have around the house, grabbing lizards, you know, so that I can introduce my children into, you know, their world and, you know, studying them. You know, the we have this gecko that showed up in our uh, home and it's acclimated for Hawaii, but here it is in Southern California, and, and you know he lives in our home, and you know, and I think it's one of the coolest things to have gecko droppings in our uh, in, in our couch. You know, <laughs> I have to vacuum more than I used to. You know, it's such a fascinating animal that it was even used during biblical times as examples that Solomon noticed them. And if you read some of what Solomon wrote about geckos hanging out in the king's palace, and then he made the analogy and the allegory that by their ability to hang on their backs, literally, by the little suction cups on their paws, that they have royalty. They hang out in royal places just because... They hang in there. And that's Solomon's point is they hang in there and, you know, and then he passes on that little bit of wisdom. You know, if you hang in there long enough, you'll see the changes. You'll see the uh, moving of the guards. You'll see the royalty come in and out. And, uh, and you know, and the, and the whole time he's up there, he's unnoticed. And so those are things that, you know, I find so, you know, fascinating. There's so much to an animal. Like, uh, you know, they literally have thousands of little microscopic suction cups like Spider-Man on their, on their fingertips. Thousands of them, you know. And that's why they can walk on glass upside down. It's amazing to me, you know. And I just, like... Can you find a more interesting animal when you start breaking down an animal like that and, and, and studying it? And, you know, bears, you know, when they have their offspring, you know, they give birth to the smallest mammal. They're the largest mammal that gives birth to the, to the smallest one and uh, uh, land mammals. And, you know, they're, you know, coming out at, you know, they're, they're like, you know, four and five ounces. You can't hardly see them. And yet then they grow into these... 1,200-pound carnivores. And it, that, to me, is, 
you know, when they're done eating and feeding, and it's a great time to start taking notes and, you know, learning about them, and, and it personalizes them. So love the bears. I uh, I, I just, it, it's hard to pick a favorite. It just depends where they're at, what they're doing, and there's so much to unravel out there. How long have you actually been photographing it professionally? Boy, i got to do my age here. 47. <laughs> and then going back to 24 so what's uh 40 23 years yeah that's important because there are changes happening on the planet particularly in the wild and the open spaces Mm -hmm. and you've been out there witnessing this and sometimes it's hard to notice changes when you're right in the middle of it yeah but you have actually had a chance to potentially see some of the changes that people are talking about I'd, i'd really love to hear what your what your perceptions are because you look you watch you're very you're very conscious of, of the changes, whether it's in Africa or in Alaska or in Wyoming. I'm just curious what you're observing. And we'll find out when we continue our in-depth journey with nature photographer extraordinaire, Jeff Mitchum, when your voice of the earth continues here on the Wild Side News. I'm getting a catcher's mitt. I'm getting ice skates. I'm getting a jigsaw puzzle. I'm getting dying coral reefs. A blue bicycle. A walkie-talkie. I'm getting a severe drought. Cool block skateboard. I'm getting melted ice caps. A killer heat wave. A shrinking glacier. I'm getting a devastating flood. Adults are generous. We're even giving kids global warming. But it's not too late. We can still reduce greenhouse gas pollution. Go to fightglobalwarming.com. Brought to you by Environmental Defense, the Robertson Foundation, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sidney Wildsmith. So go ahead, take your favorite camera, even if it's just a point and shoot, and go out and take some photos. And remember, you don't need to hop in a jet, fly for 16 hours to an exotic locale to shoot a good picture. The truth is, there are hundreds of great pictures every day in your own backyard. All you have to do is find them. And that's what makes all the difference. Jeff Mitchum continues following this brief announcement here on the Wild Side News. After 23 years as a professional nature photographer, Jeff Mitchum has had the unique opportunity to not only see, but also document the changes he's seen during a time when nature is experiencing some of the most dramatic changes that have resulted from our species' relentless drive to make it better, bigger, and profitable. Jeff Mitchum tells us what he has observed during his time in the fields, byways, hideaways, and beyond. Well, there's a bunch of things that I'm observing and very concerned about a number of corporations that are supporting the environment and foundations, and yet at the same time, the only reason that they're giving to these foundations is to cover up their global warming. 
that's a very concerted effort and this is becoming a very consistent pattern that I can give back in order to take. And, and that's one of the most notable things that I have seen developing in the world, you know, from a global perspective. So now I'm obviously, I'm being political, but I can tell you that um, I would listen to extremely conservative, um, and I'm conservative, uh, and, and, you know, so we don't get this wrong. Um, you know, I'm not a liberal attacking a conservative and, or a conservative attacking a liberal but, you know, what made and really piqued my interest was when I started hearing some of these conservative radio commentators saying that, and also liberals, uh, that there is no global warming and that this is just a part of nature. It's taking its course and they are outright denying the very things that they would say that they are using scientific fact. And, uh, you know, at the Hudson Bay, every year the ice is getting thinner less grounds for the polar bears to go out and to feed, meaning shortening their season, less body fat on them. And now they finally, uh, something that was going on 10 years ago, the government finally decides that, you know, this is a worthy cause now to investigate. Well, the problem is it's going to take another 10 years for them to come to the conclusion that we already knew 10 years ago. And so that's 20 years that we've lost. And the same thing is happening on Kilimanjaro. And if you want to see ice and, and snow there, uh, you better do it in the next 10 years. And if you don't make that hike, you'll never see it. It's it's going to be gone. So these are some of the climate shifts that I have seen. I've also witnessed the deer herds in the eastern Sierras. Uh, they used to be over 200,000. And the way that it's been managed, now you've got a deer herd that's, you know, 22 to 25,000. 15 years ago, you know, imagine you know, 200 and something thousand deer in that one region, and now it's down. There, there's only one reason for it, and, and it's not predator, you know, kills. With the bighorn sheep, yes, it is, with the lions, but not with the deer herds. Uh, the deer herds used to thrive under a lot of lion territories and things like that, and, and they were up, you know, at 200 and something thousand. And so those are... You know, I know those are just a sampling for what we want to go into here, but those are the big shifts that I have seen, you know, over time. To me, I guess the important aspect of that story is the fact that this is all done within about 20 years. Mm -hmm. We're talking about such massive change, particularly mm -hmm. with these populations, in really such a very short time that obviously if you go out another 20 years, what does happen? And that's the hard, that to me is the hard question. That's why I feel that there's such a, a critical need to move quickly, very quickly, because mm -hmm. in your life you've witnessed these changes and you've been fortunate and you can speak to them intelligently and you can verify. You, know, you don't have to be a scientist mm -hmm. to understand these things and to prove that, that these changes are happening. And unfortunately, I think in some cases we're running out of time we really have to do something. But the challenge, of course, mm -hmm. is uh, how in the world do we bring about this awareness and then as well take action? Well, I'm afraid that it would be a bearer of bad news, but uh, it's not about changing the environment. It's about changing the way that people think, and it's about changing people's hearts. People have to make a decision. You know, What do they really want to prioritize in their lives? And if you're going to... Uh, you know, put a premium on 
your ability to have certain things at the expense of destroying the environment, you know, then I think that, you know, self-examination, yeah, it's troubling, yeah, it's challenging, and, you know, I think that's what we're throwing out there, you know, is, uh, you know, if your motivation is right, um, then, you know, I think that it'll lead to a shift in your decisions, you know. The only way that we're going to change the the course and the direction of this world is by changing the human heart. All of the evidence is there. I mean, you look at World War II and, you know, the things that we knew what were going on in Germany and, you know, such a slow response, uh, you know, and and people were being slaughtered. And, uh, you know, and, and again, it was one of those, you know, things that, you know, does someone stick out their neck and, and, and it costs them potentially their political career? So I think it really has to go from the top, Sydney. You know, it has to go, you know, we want to challenge the politicians, you know, and we don't want them to be politicians. How about being a statesman? You know, we have all kinds of politicians, but can we have a statesman? You know, somebody that really will take a stand, do what's right, uh, make decisions for the long haul. I want my children. I want them to be able to see, you know, this environment and our world, and I want them to be able to bring it back and, um, you know, to enjoy it and to protect it and respect it. You know, if people respect nature and 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 wildlife and the open spaces, it, it can only come back to help humanity. You know, to bring a greater. It's like well, if we're doing this for animals, how much more so should we be? for human beings and it's a it's a good mix and so uh, it has to begin with the human heart though i know that you're a man who, who sees greater meaning in in all of this one of the questions that some people are asking is that the the christian community for example has somehow failed to really step up to acknowledge the significance of this of this gift i'd like to hear your thoughts I absolutely agree. You know, and as a Christian, there's been a very slow response to getting involved in the environment. And I don't know necessarily where that could be shaped from. From a biblical standpoint, uh, there are a lot of Proverbs that talks about a man that takes care of his, you know, animals as a man that is kind. And it's, again... It, it is just simply the way that we approach life and we go out and how clean that we are. It talks about how clean our hearts are and how sensitive. So, you know, it's, uh, it, I, I think that a, a church, a pastor would probably, with all of the issues that are on the table, you know, which one do you want to tackle? And, you know, I mean, what really matters the most is eternal life. And so they're going to deal, obviously, with the issue of salvation but I think that there's room for both and there needs to be a balance and that when the text would allow it that I think I would want to spend time there too and you know move down that road. So uh but I do know that there is a an awakening, you know, amongst Christians in the community that they are realizing that this is a subject that they have uh let go under, you know, the bridge and um so I don't know if it's a matter of resources that you know, you know, and probably prioritizing in the Christian mindset, it's going to be, you know, number one, you know, people need to come to know Christ, uh, you know, in a personal way, discipling them. You've got family issues, you know, and, um, you know, you've got a child or a kid that's contemplating suicide, 
you know so on the one hand you know i've got a suicidal child that you know we need to work with and then we've got you know global warming which one gives i mean obviously the child is going to get the prioritizing and that's a very an emotional draining kind of a thing but i would suggest that and as i have heard i know that there are people that are making a push towards that this is where a separate entity can come to together and like well, what we're doing with our israel book that's coming out uh, what really moved me over there was realizing that the israeli government has little resources to put back into the environment because they have to protect themselves so 80% of their budget is in you know the securing their borders and you know making sure that um, people don't bomb their buses and they got security so a lot of money goes into security you know at the same time you've got these structures that are uh, thousands of years old that need restoration protection national parks need to be set aside you just don't have the money for it human life versus protecting this space so that's what led me to open up our timeless foundation uh for them and you know 95% of all the wildlife uh from the birds they uh migrate through there in Israel so from the african through that african rift into europe and back goes right through israel and so that's where you know we're just asking people to step up and do both yeah you know we want to save children's lives and we want to work with them but also we you know feel that uh we can do both and uh change perspective change the heart change the way bring awareness you know and that's why you're doing what you do it ups the ante in the bar for everyone you know to hear about these things and then how do we get involved you know how do politicians get involved and our word simply to them is be a statesman be a visionary be a john muir get ahead of the game see it before it's too late make unpopular decisions stand by it but explain yourself and you'll be respected and but stand and and do what's right do what's responsible yeah words to the wise fair warning and it's an opening of the eyes well let's now shift to where you're going from here you have a new show that's coming out a new body of work yeah it's quite fun it's been exciting uh national geographic coming back to them Oh, a couple of years ago, they asked me to do an assignment going into uh, Africa and to China and kind of tracing the cultural changes and what's going on. They wanted it from a, a a landscape theme, you know. And I just said, I just can't leave. I, you know, I I can't leave my family. I said, I I'm really done with it. Thanks, but no thanks. And it was right after that that I was commissioned to go into Israel and to photograph. Israel in a way that has not traditionally been seen in the way that people think about Israel it's desert you know they have no idea how beautiful the place is and so that's what was my assignment so I went over there and fell in love with it mesmerized so after that when I came back I started thinking you know I need to carry this to the world I I want people to see that this is one of the jewels of the world it's one of the wonders of the world the place is amazing out of every country i've been in the world i've never seen such diversity it's amazing it just blows your mind and and i thought this needs to go into a coffee table book and so from there the trips back shooting 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 springtime fall winter and then you know as the book is coming out in october we have an exhibit 
along with my new collection called Seasons of Light and another book called Seasons of Light. And, you know, it's really just springboarding, you know, connections and, and then also the foundation. You know, we really want to do something unique and inspiring and, you know, looking for people to get involved with our foundation and write the check so that, you know, our kids can do things, you know, over there and be generous. This is a place that there's only one of them. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you're Muslim, Christian, you know, Hindu, Buddhist. This is the great treasure. It's a great human message, period. And so, and, you know, the artifacts, and uh, but just the natural beauty and the wonder of it is just, uh, it's, it's special. So those are some of the things that are going on along with the um, opening up of a couple of new galleries and, you know, also giving people an opportunity. We started these licensing agreements with people that have a great affinity and love for, you know, landscape and wildlife that we're contracting with people to open up uh, their own galleries using our images in their community and it's like having your own gallery and we supply you the images and it's your own business so we just felt that you know we wanted to push things a little bit faster and get it out there and help you know let's let's go if people wanted to go to one of your galleries that are in existence right now where would they go well we have actually we got two new ones that are going to be opening up we're going to have a downtown san diego location later this year in 2007 and then the next one is going to be actually at disneyland (laughs) Right in the promenade, and uh, so that's our big, you know, opening event. And oh, I forgot, uh, we have two uh, galleries are going to be opening up in uh, Israel. One in uh, Jerusalem, and so we're actually looking for a buyer for that one. And uh, then at the airport, and uh, so that both those locations are, and then in Galilee, we have one at the Tiberias. So those, it's a busy year for us. <laughs> Well, it's been an absolute joy talking with Jeff Mitchum, who's a sensational photographer, but as well a human being. And I want to thank you, Jeff, for sharing all your thoughts and your spirit here on the Wild Side News. Thanks for having me, Sydney, and it was very wonderful to spend this time with you and your listeners. So don't ever give up. Push yourself to find the best and record it on film, on tape, and digital format, or by any means possible. It's more important now than it has ever been before to awaken the people of this world to refocus their attention back to the gift, for it is far more splendid than any one of us can tell. Visit Jeff Mitchum's website at seasonsoflightgallery.com or at mitchumphotography.com. This is Sidney Wildsmith saying adios. Until we meet again next time or any time on the archives, when your voice of the earth takes you on a walk with wonder here on the Wild Side News.